0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, I'm glad to hear it. Just fiddling with my stand, bear with me. All right. So, the backdrop of our current series uh, is that people, particularly young people, but not exclusively young people, are leaving the church in America at historic rates. Fun opening line. Uh, Statistics show that they are disaffiliating with Christianity at record paces. So for an example, 40% of millennials now consider themselves unaffiliated with any particular form of religion or faith. And of that 40%, 76% come from a church background. Something's happening in our culture and it's happening really fast, very fast. So, about 10 years ago, 12% of Americans uh, would self identify as unaffiliated with any faith. According to the last uh, surveys, that number is up to around 23, 24% in less than or about 10 years. In sociology or sociological science, that is unheard of. That is a huge, fast moving train of a movement. Uh, that is not to be taken lightly. You've got to pay attention to that because it's a big deal. So to be troubled about your faith, if you grew up in the church, I'm learning more and more and I'm more and more convinced is normal, typical, not unusual. And many of you can relate to this, Right? This is something you've had to work through, or you're currently working through, and this is something that we found as a congregation that we can be a place where people are able to work through their faith before choosing to let go of Jesus. But not by accident. A lot of you may not realize, but we've actually made strategic decisions about the type of community we want to be, the way we're going to live out our faith, the type of culture that we feel like we need to have to be able to foster these types of environments where people on the front end of faith, who are really put off by their perception of what following Jesus is, by what they see in the world around them, can maybe just get past that in this setting and give Jesus a fair look. Or for people who grew up in the church and things are starting to break down, they're not making sense, we can be a place for you to work through things, a safe place, where you're not going to be judged, where you can ask any question, where you can come to any conclusion, you have the freedom to do those things. And what we've seen is that, although we're not perfect, I'm sure it doesn't, wouldn't be true for everyone, that's happening here. People are having that experience. So in this series, we're looking at how and why, so that we can own those things And maybe even lean into them a little bit more because there aren't a lot of places like that in the world right now, or in the West, or in America. Particularly for Christians to think through their faith. And a lot of people, they see this either-or situation. They don't realize that it's not this or that, that you can actually hold on to Jesus and just rethink or reimagine the way you approach faith. And that's what we do, I think, really well here. So the last few weeks we've been looking Uh, The first week we looked at what are the elements of uh, culture and community we're trying to build to make this type of space. And then the last few weeks we've been looking at the biggest hang-ups that people tend to have. And these come from conversations that I've had over and over and over and over again to the point where I've lost count uh, with people who are thinking about quitting faith in Jesus or not sure if they even want to lean into faith in Jesus and what comes up over and over and over again. And one of the things I've noticed is that people would often say to me something along the lines of, the things I was so certain of growing up or in college just don't make sense to me anymore, or they aren't working in my life, or I reread some of the Christian books from my youth that meant so much to me, and none of it adds up. I feel like I'm reading a different language that makes no sense to me. I can't believe they were so meaningful to me. And actually, I think this makes a lot of sense. So many people are experiencing this because for the past 300 years, the Western church has been trying to nail down the right answers to faith. And this is a change. As far as we know, all the way up to the last 300 years... The right brain, if you will, dominated the Christian faith, the intuitive, uh, the relational, the experience, the meaning. What is the meaning of this? But 300 years ago, there was a major cultural shift in the West. It's a shift that is called different things. Sometimes it's called the age of enlightenment. Sometimes it's called the age of reason. Often it's just referred to as the modern era. And with this new frame shift, different things became more important. I think one way to think of it is the left brain. Uh, The analytical started to be more highly valued than the intuitive. So things like the scientific method were developed. Uh, Systematic, formulaic approaches to life were elevated, while intuitive or feeling, experiential approaches were at best considered second rate, if not completely dubious. And so anything associated with faith or mystery or experience was to be taken very lightly and very suspiciously. And a lot of great things came out of the modern era. I'm not knocking it. Uh, A lot of the technology we have now We have because of the development of the scientific method. I'm pro-scientific method. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I actually think that what we need is a balance between our left and our right brains, between our analytical, reasonable selves and our intuitive, relational selves, meaning. And what a lot of people don't realize is historically in the church, we've had both, but with the intuitive in the lead. The first followers of Jesus, for example, had no scriptures. They had to follow Jesus. They had to look, as Jesus did, for what the Father was doing and do that thing. And some of them had walked with Jesus. They had experience with Jesus. Others met him just through the Holy Spirit. But there was no logical, I'm sure it was reasonable, rational, but no logical base to build things on the way that there were as the scriptures were written over the first 100, 150 years. So what happened about 300 years ago in response to this really massive cultural shift, not unlike one that I think is happening right now, the church felt compelled to prove that Christianity was rational and logical if not the most rational, and the most logical. That if anyone knew what what we know, they would believe the same things. And so the Bible began to be touted even more as a foundation for Christian life and reasonable understanding. The Bible had the answers. So the logical thing to do was to formulaically break the Bible down Into categories and groups, and then put it all back together, organized around those groups or themes to get the right answer to whatever the question was. Let's systematize everything. Let's write catechisms so there's no doubt. We have the theologically proven right answers. Now, a lot of those things on their own are not bad. I'm not knocking. I don't think it's evil to do systematic type of theology or to write a catechism. I just think those things can really take up too much room and push out the kind of life that I think Jesus wants for us. And in the end, I think that no one bought into modernism More than the new scientific community and the church. 100%. Dove right in. If there was a question, Christians had the right answer. The right answer. And some Christians were just a little bit more right than others. And so at the age of enlightenment also came thousands of denominations. Because all of a sudden having the right answers was very important. The provable answers. Black and white, no shades of gray. Shades of gray, that's suspect. That means you can't prove it. There's just one problem with this approach. Well, there might be a few. One I'm going to highlight today. People today, particularly people under the age of 40, no longer see the world through a modern frame. The culture that people are growing up with now is different. It's switched back to the right brain. The analytical, without the intuitive, reason without experience is now suspect. And people value what they can experience in life more than what they can abstractly obtain or prove. And research shows that particularly, I don't know that anyone really likes this label, but it's the only thing I got, millennials, research shows that millennials see the world in a profoundly different way than people in the 20th century did. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm going to mention two ads, and I wonder if you've seen either of them. I don't know how you couldn't, but maybe you haven't. So there's one ad from State Farm Insurance. It's called Never. And the idea of this ad is we're going to follow this young uh, couple through their lives as they proclaim all the things that they will never do, and then watch how they do all of them, right? So I'm never getting married. Well, they get married. We're never moving out of the city. They move out of the city. We're never having kids. We have kids. We're never having another kid. We're having other kids. We're never getting a minivan. We get a minivan. And the joke is that as millennials mature, uh, they'll become just like their parents and view the world the same way, kind of like the rebellious children of the 60s, eventually by the 80s, were very much like their parents. That's one ad. The other ad is for Lincoln. I think he debuted in a Super Bowl a couple years ago with uh, Matthew McConaughey. Do You remember that one? And the big idea here, besides the weird way he says everything, (laughs) is comes to a point where he says, I didn't drive Lincolns because I'm paid or because it's cool, right? I've I've always driven Lincolns because I liked it, right? Sort of an authentic experience. The reason I drive a Lincoln is because I like it. That's why I do it. Now, I'm not a millennial. I'm an -er. Xer. I'm sorry. So when I saw these ads, I thought, oh, never, ha, 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 isn't that true? And when I saw the Lincoln ad, I thought, that guy is weird. (laughs) But you know what? These ads were made to specifically target the millennial generation, and Lincoln sales went up by 25%. And I know some millennial folks who were offended by the State Farm ad because it's kind of dismissive and judgy and untrue in some ways. There's some truth there, too. And this is what I often see with folks on the edge of pitching their faith. Formulaic approaches eventually don't line up with lived experience. And that's incredibly troubling to people who no longer see the world through a modern frame. Where experience has more value to how you understand reality. So if your formula doesn't work, it's particularly jarring. And the folks I've talked to, they aren't going back to the faith that they grew up with. It's not happening. They do not see the world that way. In the 60s, rebellious youth still saw the world through the same frame. That hadn't changed. They still made their value judgments, how they understand reality, uh, truth considerations through exactly the same frame and lenses as their parents. They just came to different conclusions, right? But they didn't question what was going on underneath that. That's not what we're living through right now. People particularly, people above and whatever, but particularly under the age of 40, simply do not view reality through a modern lens. And they're not going to. And so they're either quitting Jesus or ignoring Jesus or finding a new approach because the modern approach that We've all been given, if you grew up in the church, isn't going to play or make sense. they are going to find it damaging. And I think in a lot of ways it is. They need something rooted, but also very experiential, as I think we all do. Something that I also think that we see Jesus offering people. So let's read this passage. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus." Peter said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. (laughs) Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, this is a somewhat famous passage, maybe not up there with walking on water, but it's fairly well known about Jesus. It's referred to as the transfiguration. It's a big word. Uh, And it, it certainly is a very cool story. Jesus becomes radiant with light. His whole appearance changes. And the meaning of the passage, though, is sometimes kind of hard to figure. Why does all this happen? I mean, it's kind of a cool thing, but what difference would it make? Why would Jesus do this? And I think if we can understand some of those things, we can understand some very crucial things to a life of faith in Jesus that he offers. So let's look at an experience, a vision, and then a quick reminder. The experience I think that's important here is, and that we can take from this, is that we need to experience the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? We need to experience the glory of God. Well, if you look closely at this passage, you'll notice that this moment, this look past the humanness of Jesus to something divine is not for the benefit of Jesus, but it's for the benefit of of his followers that have gone up the mountain with him. So Jesus leads them up the mountain. All the pronouns put the emphasis on the disciples as those who are being acted upon. So Jesus is transfigured before them. Jesus converses with Elijah and Moses in front of them. The cloud surrounds them. And when God speaks affirming words about Jesus, he doesn't speak them to Jesus. Did you pick up on that? He speaks them to the disciples about Jesus. And if you back up, you'll see that the first proclamation was to Jesus at his baptism. You are my son. This is to his followers. He's my son. Listen to him. All of this is for the disciples, not for Jesus. And Jesus considers it important that they have this experience. And what they're experiencing is a taste of the glory of God. And many of the commentators have noted that there's a really striking sim- similarity here between this story and an ancient story in the Bible about the display of God's glory in the book of Exodus. So in that time, uh, it's with Moses, They're on a mountain. God comes in a cloud. God speaks in a cloud. And then Moses' face is radiant afterwards, after being in the presence of God and his glory. Now Jesus is showing his disciples his glory on a mountain in a way that recalls this display of God's glory to Moses at Mount Sinai. And Jesus knows that they need to see this. We all need to experience the glory of God. We hunger to experience the glory of God, to be taken into it somehow. Some would say that we're in pursuit of it our whole lives. Uh, There was a Christian author and thinker right in the middle of the modern movement named C.S. Lewis. Ever heard of him? Uh, These days, he might be more famous for his series of Narnia books that have been made into some good, some maybe not so great movies. And... uh, He thought that the musings and longings of our artists and poets point to this deep longing in all of us. At one point he wrote this. He said, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why we've peopled the air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves, that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy themselves that beauty, grace, and beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That is why poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. Or, not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star, and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. What is Jesus doing? Well, in part, I think he's showing the disciples his glory I think in showing the disciples his glory, he's showing them that they can part- the life they can participate in if they will follow him. In the Exodus story, Moses, as holy as he was, was not allowed to look directly into the face of God. It's kind of interesting. It's like he gets shoved into this crag and he just gets to see, and this is the translation, not my words, the backside of God <laughs> as the glory goes by. And this is one of the reasons I think that Peter suggests building shelters, which is kind of humorous, or more literally, tabernacles. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, tabernacles had to be built for the presence and glory of God because the Israelites could not be directly in God's presence. Only Moses could go in. So the tabernacles were at once a dwelling place for God and also protection for the Israelites from his presence. Now on the Mount of Transfiguration, however, the disciples are allowed to enter into the cloud to witness what's happening there, to experience the glory of God, and they live. So they can experience the glory of God through Jesus. And as they do, they're not just experiencing something good, which they certainly are, but they're experiencing something that they are called or invited into, to participate in. And as they see Jesus transfigured, they're getting a sneak peek A foretaste of resurrection and the power that is at work in it. The same power that Jesus promises later can work in them. See, experience is not suspect. It's not second rate. It's essential. We need it. Our our minds are wired for it. Neuroscience is discovering this. You know what I read this week? We understand music before language. That might sound like a big deal, but for a long time, people thought it was the other way around. And it's making more and more sense, as people study the brain, that the first thing that humanity developed was poetry. Before pros. I think we're designed to lead with our right brain. Not the other way around. So formulas, catechisms, the right answers. They aren't going to keep you going when life happens. They aren't. The answers don't produce faith. What keeps you going, and Jesus, I think, knows this, is the experience of his glory. And faith is a desire for that and a belief that it rests in following Jesus. Jesus knows his disciples will need to be aware of this, particularly in light of the conversations that Jesus just had with them. You know, it said six days earlier when he starts talking about how he's going to die. If they're going to keep going, they don't need a theology as much as they need a taste of what's to come. Not that theology isn't helpful. But it's not nearly as, po- as powerful as experience. So to follow Jesus is to hold on to this hope to taste it, to long for more and expect for more now and in the hereafter. And ultimately, this is what Peter takes from this experience. Years later, when writing to the church to refresh their memory, Peter wrote this. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This is what keeps Peter going. Peter held this experience in his heart for the rest of his life. Jesus wants his followers to live with a sense of the glory of God. To look for meaning beyond formulas. To expect that. We need this. Second, a vision. We need to see who Jesus really is. Uh, here, Jesus is shown, I think, as the sort of above all culmination of everything person, right? So in Exodus, after experiencing the glory of God, Moses' face would then start to, it would shine, but then it would start to fade. And this story is in strike, is stark contrast to that. So Moses' glory was, what? this is a big word, derivative, meaning... It was put on him. Jesus' glory is essential, meaning Moses reflected a glory that wasn't his own, or Jesus emanates a glory that is his essence. And many think that Moses and Elijah represent the major parts of the Hebrew Bible, which are often called the prophets and the law. Elijah the prophet, Moses the law. And Jesus here is shown as the one who comes and surpasses both Moses and Elijah. And in their presence, Moses and Elijah, God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. God the Father is putting Jesus above everything else, above the greatest leaders of the Israelites and even the scriptures that tell their stories. Now the author Mark here is not saying that we don't need the Bible anymore. He's not saying that it's not the Word of God. He's not saying that it's not inspired. Far from it. And we teach from the Bible every Sunday here. We encourage its study. We encourage interaction with it as a foundational way to connect to God. So, what Mark is doing, I think, could make some folks who really respect and love the Bible sort of perk up. But don't give Mark too hard of a time. He's actually just doing the same thing that other biblical authors do. He's just doing what Luke does in his telling of the life of Jesus when he, points, when he reports that Jesus says, quote, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all, the, all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, see the Moses and prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or what John does, when in his version Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. All of these authors are pointing to the role that scripture is meant to have in our lives. Namely, that scriptures were all about Jesus. They were designed to point people to him. And that in him was the fulfillment, the reality, the ultimate authority that scriptures were pointing to. You don't need more of the Bible. You need more of Jesus. And the Bible can help. In a really powerful way. But it can't replace. I don't know if you realize this. and this... I think if you want to make Christianity a modern religion in terms of the Age of Enlightenment, the modern era, this really messes it all up. Some of the Bible is purposely, purposely unclear. There's a story that Jesus told. There was a parable. Uh, It's called the Parable of the Soils, or sometimes a Parable of the Sower. And in this story... You've got all these different types of soil, right? And you've got a sower He goes out and he he throws seeds on all the different types of soil. And some of them, the seeds do great. Uh, Some of them, they don't do so great. Jesus tells this parable and absolutely no one understands it. (laughs) They're all confused. And then Jesus says this. He quotes a, a, a prophecy from the Old Testament when they ask him, we don't get it, what's this about? He says, they may be ever seeing... But never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. <coughs> okay. Kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it really hard. Or there's some people that aren't, you know, otherwise, some people might turn and be forgiven. That sounds like Jesus. That bothered me for a long time, until I realized, if you understand what's happening here, it tells this confusing story that no one gets. A lot of people go home, they forget it, but there's a certain group of people that press in, that hang around Jesus, that ask him questions, that push forward, and he says to those people, the secret of the kingdom of God is given to you. It's not about finding the right answers, although answers can be helpful. It's about engaging with Jesus. That's the secret of the kingdom of God. The people who hung around got the secret. In the tradition I grew up in would often make statements like, all we need is the Bible. You've got your feelings, I've got the word. Oh, some of you heard that one. (laughs) And the thought here is if we studied enough, broke down the Bible, put it back together again, we could figure everything out, find the answer to anything. The problem is the Bible is obscure on purpose sometimes because Jesus doesn't want you to be able to figure it out without following him. If your catechism is so perfect that you no longer need Jesus... There's a problem. And you're probably deluded anyway because it's not perfect. Who's perfect? Who does the Bible say is perfect? Who does the Bible say? Who does the Bible point to? Who does the Bible say is the truth? The Bible does not say the Bible is the truth. Bible points to Jesus and says, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. The Bible is helpful towards the end of knowing Jesus better. But if we use it to cut Jesus out... If we see it as the way to answer everything, we lose Jesus. It's not meant to answer everything. It's meant to draw us into connection and relationship with Jesus. Study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. We don't need certainty. We need faith. We need Jesus. And one of the great lies of the age of enlightenment in the modern era is that you need to nail everything down. You need to have certainty to be happy or have security or feel at peace. But it's a lie. We need faith. Faith only exists in uncertainty. And Jesus knows that. So the scriptures are written in a way that point us to and force us to Jesus. Engaging the person who is the truth. This is what sustains Jesus' followers because life, what they need... Isn't in the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. Or anything else. According to the scriptures, this life is in Jesus. So along with experiencing the glory of God, we have to engage with Jesus. We have to see Jesus more and more as He is. And that takes time. It's never finished. And It requires humility. Peter's just beginning to work on this, and he has some big mess-ups if you read the rest of the story. His first reaction, let's build some shelters. And this misses, I think, one of the very reasons that the transfiguration was so important. We need to be reminded of Jesus' mission. I think one of the reasons that Peter Shelter's idea was so misguided is that it makes the mountaintop the end without the cross. And Peter would have kept Jesus on that mountaintop where people could travel to visit him forever. But the power for transformation and renewal comes through the cross. And the disciples aren't quite getting this, as I think is our natural bent. It says, As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing rising from the dead? What does that mean? Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah's come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. Now, they've just seen Elijah, and they know that the coming of Elijah is prophesied as the precursor to the coming of the Messiah, and their thought is, okay, okay, Jesus, Elijah has just come. It's on. Time to take over. And they want to skip the cross and the rising from the dead, and get right to the kingdom. The work to be done, the renewal that needs to happen, the people that need help, the systems that need to change are all down the mountain. And the power for transformation would come through suffering, through the cross. The world needed a savior, not a shrine. And Jesus was on a mission to renew the whole world. And they couldn't stay on the mountaintop. He had to go to the cross. Jesus' mission went beyond a mountaintop experience to the ends of the earth. And in the end, it is about mission. Not minutiae, I'm sorry. I got got into my alliterating, my MM's. It's about, it's about mission, it's not about figuring it all out, nailing it all down. In fact, if you want to lose your faith, nail it all down. If you want to lose your faith, nail everything down. Because it might work for a season, but then it won't work. It's not a formula. You have to follow. It's about following, engaging with Jesus. Follow. His invitation isn't come to me and I will give you the right theology to do life. He says, follow me, live with me, learn from me, experience me. In the world that needs help, as I work on you. Follow me. Follow me. Listen to him. If we lose that, we lose everything. That's when we lose everything. If we replace Jesus with our systems, we lose everything. And people... In this day and age, don't even value systems the way they did for the last 300 years. And so many of you, you're in all the crisis mode because the system that you were given as a kid, which you value a little bit less, it's breaking down. It doesn't work. It's not perfect. It's not Jesus. And people who loved you and still love you gave you Jesus with the best system they had. And in that system, there are things that are going to help you for the rest of your life, and there are things that are just wrong or that won't help you or that worked 100 years ago but don't work now. So honor them by following Jesus. And honor those well-meaning people by, not, by holding off before you kick Jesus out the door because the system is failing. Jesus never wanted it to be about the system It's not his system. It's a or an imperfect system that has some helpful things and some things that won't work after a while or that don't work in every situation. But that's okay. That's good. Because that means there's room for you to engage with Jesus in the moment, in your life, in a different season, in a different context. You don't turn to page 25 and read what to do. You turn to Jesus And you interact. That's where life is. So, you may not have realized it. This is the type of approach we have been trying to give to people. That's focused on Jesus. Following him, knowing him, being impacted by him as opposed to hoping that what was written about him will impact you. Or if we give you the right formula, you'll get the results that you want. What was written about him points to him. And what was written about him is amazing and inspired and glorious, but it's not the glory. Let's pray.